Well, hey, good morning, and uh, welcome to Bridgewater. It's me again, and uh, uh, if you missed the host time, my name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so excited that you are here with us. And I just want to start off by asking you a question. Is there anybody here that happens to be colorblind? Anybody? One, two, a couple people? Okay, a few. All right, all right, all right. So uh, I'm good friends with a guy named Ben, and Ben was my roommate in college. Ben happens to be colorblind, and we happen to have a lot of fun with Ben at his expense. And uh, he would sometimes make some interesting choices regarding wardrobe. He wasn't 100% colorblind, but enough to walk around with a pink mug all day and not know it. And uh, it was it was fun. And so. A few years ago, some of the guys in his small group got together and they purchased him some glasses through a company called Enchroma. And these glasses allow people who are colorblind to then see things in full color. And it is incredible. And I want to show you a video. It's not of my friend Ben, but it's a video of someone putting on these glasses and seeing everything in color for the first time. So take a look. So when you can't see color the way that they are designed and created, and all of a sudden you put those lenses on and you see them for the first time, there's so many videos just like that where people begin to tear up and they begin to cry because those lenses changed how they see everything. If you have glasses or contacts, you know what it's like for your prescription to sort of change and you're not seeing things with the clarity that you used to. And all of a sudden you put those new prescriptions on and everything comes into focus and it's clear. And those glasses are a lot like our worldview. Our worldview is really a lens to see everything through. And the worldview that we see everything through changes everything. It has implications for who we date or who we marry or what you do or what you th find as moral or ethical. All of those issues that we make decisions on come through the lenses of our worldview. And it changes how we interpret life. It changes not only the decisions we make, but how we live out those decisions. And it hits on certain issues like creation, like sanctity of life, like gender, like sexuality, like marriage, all of those things come through the lens of our worldview. And that's what we're talking about today. And so I want you to grab your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 1. Because what you believe changes everything. What you and I believe changes everything. And so let me ask you, what do you believe is true? 
What we believe changes everything, and that is your worldview. And so this week, we are starting a brand new series called Mirror Images. And we, we live in this world where we were created to reflect God. We were made in his image, but we live in a broken world. And we run into these issues that are hot topics, big issues that we wrestle through. And how do we figure this out? It all comes through our worldview. And so here's my commitment to you, that as we hit on some of these topics, which can be quite divisive and polarizing, I'm not committed to answering all of your questions. In fact, as we talk through these issues, that may stir up more questions. And that's okay. And I'm not necessarily afraid of your questions. I just know we can't preach on these issues for the next 10 years because more questions will keep coming up. But here's my commitment to you. I want to give you a grid to think through those issues. And I want to deal with those issues with grace and truth. That's my commitment to you. That whether you agree with me or disagree, I want to handle those topics carefully with grace and truth. And I want you to go out into your world and deal with those same topics, have those same conversations with people that you know, that you love, that you care about, people that you don't know with grace and truth. That's my commitment to you. And so we are simply laying the foundation today. We're laying the framework and each of the sermons over the next four weeks are going to build on each other. So please come back, okay? If it's not your regular rhythm to be here every week, every sermon coming forward is going to build on itself or the previous sermons, all right? So when it comes to worldview, there's really five big questions that people ask that they wrestle with. And here's the five questions. Number one, where did I come from? People of faith, people of spirituality, people who have no faith at all, all have opinions on where did I come from? You have opinions. You have thoughts on where you came from. Number two, who am I? Not just your name, not just what you do, not just what roles you play, but really, who are you? And along with that, why are you here? Why am I here? What's my purpose here on earth? For the amount of time that I have, why do you exist? That's a worldview question. You put on the lens and you see everything through that question. Four, where am I going? At the end of my life, where will I go? Do I just go in the ground? Do I spend eternity anywhere? Am I reincarnated? Do I show up later as an animal, as another person? Or do I spend eternity with a creator? Where am I going? And number five, how do I determine what is true? What's your source of determining truth? Those are five big worldview questions. That whether or not you're aware, you wrestle through those things and you think through that grid. And this worldview informs your decisions. It informs how you interpret life. So here we are, Genesis chapter one. It's the first book of the Bible. Hopefully you're there. Let me give you a little bit of background uh, Moses is the author of Genesis, and he's writing Genesis as Israel is wandering around the desert for 40 years. Like They're just going around and around. They're wandering, and God is actually speaking through Moses. 
just as God does with the other Old Testament authors and the New Testament authors, God is superintending and he's guiding using his vocabulary, using his uh, skills, using his personalities, using his background to write this account. And God is the one, and he's speaking through Moses. And if you're here and you're like, I'm not really sure if that's true or accurate, let me just tell you this, that Jesus believes that Moses wrote it. In Matthew chapter 19 and John 7, Jesus references Moses as being the author of Genesis. So if Jesus believes it, I'm good with that, right? So me, Jesus, and Moses, we all agree that Moses wrote Genesis. Glad we're on the same page. All right. Genesis chapter 1, start reading in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. <laughs> That's incredible. Go to verse 1. Back to verse 1. In the beginning, in the very beginning, outside of the beginning, there was a beginner. And it's no mistake that God is the subject of this sentence. That God is not only the subject and the theme of this passage, he is the central theme of the entire Bible. He's the hero of everything. And it's in the beginning, before there was anything else, there was God. And he began to create. Here is an outside, eternal creator speaking things into existence. In fact, the universe is believed to have a beginning both by science and the Bible. Both of them would agree that there's a beginning. Both of them have to have faith about how that beginning came into play. In fact, there's so many different constants that have to be in place for this creation to actually happen. There's over a hundred different constants that sit on a razor's edge that have to be there for the universe to be in existence. And without those constants, the universe, you and I, we don't exist. And yet outside of the beginning is a timeless, spaceless, personal, intelligent creator. Outside of time. Let me show you this with my Apple Pencil, right? Here's, pretend this is the timeline, right? Here's the beginning. We don't know where the end is, but let's pretend it's right here. And God is outside of time, outside of space. And before there is time, before there's anything else, God is there. And he creates it. And he's outside of that. Before the beginning actually started, he's there. But not only is there a beginner, there's these certain universal laws that have to exist, like gravity. You know what happens if gravity doesn't exist? It's this fine line, this razor's edge, that if gravity ceases to exist, if it's just off a little bit here or there, we have major problems. In fact, if gravity, if there's too much gravity, you and I, we get crushed. If there's not enough gravity, you and I will float away. Gravity has to be finely tuned. But not only gravity, the placement of our planet in proximity to the sun, if it's just off a little bit, we burn up. If we're too far away, we freeze to death. 
The placement of the sun is finely tuned, but not only the placement of our sun, the expansion of the entire universe. If it expands too fast, we don't have stars being formated. And if it, if it expands too slow, the entire universe collapses. There's hundreds of constants just like that that have to be finely tuned. And so there is a beginning, and behind the beginning, there is a beginner, and behind the fine-tuning, there is a fine-tuner. The oxygen levels have to be finely tuned. The placement of our solar system has to be finely tuned. If any of those are gone, if any of those constants are not finely tuned, our entire universe ceases to exist. All of those have to be there. I've been reading a book called uh, Canceled Science by Eric Heaton. He's a physics professor or was a physics professor at Ball State University. He was giving a class all on fine-tuning. And he was fired. He wasn't talking about God. He wasn't talking about Christianity. He was just talking about the mathematical probability of all of this happening. And in that book, he talked about 60 constants that have to be there and what that looks like to be finely tuned. And in his book, he talks about, okay, there, there's matter, there's dark matter, and there's dark energy, right? I'm not a scientist. I don't understand this. But he says, in the universe, there's 4.6% of the universe that is matter. That's the stars and the planets and all the energy that's there. 23.2% is dark matter, and 72.2% is dark energy. And you have to have all of those percentages for life to be possible, and here's what he says. The chance that those percentages will be exactly enough to make life possible on earth is one in 10 with 120 zeros after it. It's incredible that if one of those things is just off by a little bit, we don't have a beginning. We don't have the heavens and the earth. He says, it's sort of like me grabbing a, a grain of sand and I go and I, and I hide it somewhere on some beach, somewhere on, on planet Earth, and I say, Chris, go find the one grain of sand. And he actually finds it. Congratulations, Chris. He brings it back. I hide it again on another beach somewhere else in the country or in the planet, and, and he finds it a second time. And not only a second time, but Chris is amazing. He finds the same grain of sand three times in a row. You're amazing. And he says again, by chance, that's just one of those examples, one of those 60 things of fine tunings actually happening is like Chris finding that same grain of sand three times in a row. If one of those fine tunings is off, there's no beginning, there's no earth, there's no universe, and God created all of it. Later in that book, he says, okay, you want to talk about random. You want to talk about chance, right? We love to talk about, in the science world, everything happened by chance. It was just kind of random. We just kind of evolved. And you want to talk about random? He says, let's talk about this famous quote from Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question. What would it take to randomly, by chance, get that sentence in order with the capital T, with the spacing, with the punctuation, with everything. We're going to give you a monkey, a typewriter, ink, 
in unlimited paper, how long would it take for that monkey to type this sentence, to hit the space bar or the shift bar, then the capital T, then the O, by chance, randomly, get a space in there, and continue with the B and the E, and continue. How long would it take? Heaton says, reproducing the Shakespearean words requires the monkey to happen upon the correct 64 symbol sequence of 26 letters, one space character, and four punctuation symbols. The universe would burn out before the immortal monkey managed to randomly string together even a couple dozen of these letters in sequence. He says, okay, that, that's a lot, right? Now we're going to give you a billion monkeys with typewriters and paper and ink. That's going to be a hot mess, okay? <laughs> and every second, each of those monkeys is by chance randomly trying to get this sentence in order. He says, you know what would happen if they try to make that attempt? It would take the entire age of the universe, times one trillion, times one billion, to get that sentence out by random, by chance. And so that doesn't look very probable. Both science and the Bible say there's a beginning to the universe. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created. He created all of these things. He breathed them out into existence. He's the sustainer. It was formless, and then he formed it. And then he began to fill it. And it says he, be, he created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, all the things you can't even imagine and fathom. He created those things. It's pretty incredible. Then verse 2 says God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And he said, let there be light. Out of his mouth, 186,000 miles per second came stars and light. He created all of that, simply speaking it into existence. It's incredible that when we see God as our creator, it changes our worldview. It changes how we handle our lives, the decisions we make. It changes what I do tomorrow at work if I see him as my creator. So the first truth I want you to see is that God is our source of life. He's our source of life. Number next. And if he's my source of life, that impacts how I see the world. Because here's the reality. I'm not the point to this world. I'm not the most important person in this room. You are not the point to your life. Now you have purpose. I didn't say you were pointless, but God is the point to our life. God is the most important person in the room. He is the creator. He's the source of life. That changes everything. He's our creator and he's our designer. Now, I grew up in Florida and I lived about 10 minutes from the beach. I would love to drive there on Sunday mornings before church, sit on the sand, watch the sun come up. I loved swimming in the ocean, surfing, boogie boarding, skimboarding, all that. And imagine you and I are walking down the beach and we see this. We see these lines in the sand and I go, whoa, that's, that's incredible. How did that get there? And you go, Tim, actually, I know. It's when, when the waves come in and they go out and the tide and it creates these layers and it creates this, this random 
design, which is actually quite, quite impressive and amazing, and they're called tide lines. Now imagine you and I continue walking down the beach and 100 yards, we see this. I go, whoa, how did that get there? And you're like, Tim, it was the waves. Waves are amazing. <laughs> Laugh. It's kind of true. People look at creation, they go, well, over enough oceans and enough waves and enough wind and over enough time, we could get something that looks like this. And you and I know there's a, there's a designer, there's a creator behind this who spent time and energy with the sand and the water and making that and shaping that and sculpting that and designing that. Well, you and I are walking down the beach and we walk another 100 feet and we see something a little more simpler. It looks like this. I go, whoa, how did that get there? That's amazing. You're like, the waves, Tim. No, you and I would look at that and we go, you know what? That's incredible. What an amazing artist that took the time to do that. That when we look at design, we know that there is a designer. When we look at creation, there's a creator. I have a watch on. I know there's probably several people who spent time designing and creating and putting this into existence. It didn't just randomly show up. It didn't just happen by chance. Design went into this watch. There's a creator who created everything. And this is the idea of this teleological argument. It's the argument for the existence of God based on design and purpose. That there is a creation there must be a creator. There's a design. There must be a designer. There's a beginning. There must be a beginner. There's things that are constant in our universe that are finely tuned, and there must be a fine-tuner. God is that source of life. He is that creator. Yet we look at sand, and we look at sandcastles and sculptures and things like that and the complexities, and we compare that to our bodies, we know that the sand sculptures must need a creator, but the complexities of our bodies and our universe have to have a creator, have to have a designer. Take a look at verse two. He says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse three and God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke it into existence. We see him doing this all through the first chapter. He spoke it into existence, spoke it into existence, spoke it into existence. He does it out of nothing. You and I, when we go to the beach, if we create a sand castle, we're using sand and water to create something, if you're at home and you're working with, with wood and you're building something, you're building a shed or a house, you're using materials. If you want to plant a tree, use a seed and you plant it. But God created everything out of nothing. Only he can do that. He spoke it into existence. You and I are not the point. He created everything. 
and we'll begin to see everything rightly. We begin to order our lives rightly. This is a lens we have to figure out, okay, who created everything? Who is the source of life? Because if it's God, if it's the God of the Bible, that changes everything. This gives you purpose. It gives me purpose. But take a look at verse 4. He says, God saw the light and it was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now I believe that he created six literal 24-hour days. And then God rested on the seventh 24-hour day. And I'll explain why. Why do I believe that? Here's some reasons why. First, the Hebrew word yom, which is day, when it's used with numbers in the Old Testament, always means a 24-hour period. There's hundreds of passages in the Old Testament where yom is used with a number, and it means a 24-hour period. Hundreds of passages. Number two, when you see the word yom, with the use of numbers and the phrase evening and morning, it always indicates 24 hours. Third, in the book of Exodus, when Moses is given the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about the Sabbath, and he's referring back to Genesis 1, he says, six literal days, then rest, take a Sabbath on that seventh day. I don't think that Moses is saying, work six long extended periods of time and then take a seventh long extended period rest. Moses is telling the Israelites to work six literal 24-hour days and then rest one day, Sabbath. And he's pointing back to Genesis 1, the creation. So I believe that Genesis 1 is literal. And I believe that when you take Genesis 1 literal, it impacts your entire worldview. It shapes how you read God's word. Because if I take Genesis 1 as figurative, and then I go to Genesis chapter 2, and I look at the details of the creation of Adam and Eve, then I also have to take Genesis 2 figurative. But then what do I do with Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin? Well, then I've got to take that figurative too. If I take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 figuratively, why did Jesus die on the cross? What do you do with the resurrection? What do you do with the other miracles in the New Testament? And so all of this shapes not only our worldview, but it impacts the gospel. That I have a need for a savior because there really was an Adam. There really was an Eve. They really did sin. And I really do sin. Jesus really did die on the cross and he really did raise himself from the dead, conquered sin and conquered death. And Jesus is called the second Adam. If there really wasn't a first Adam, what do you do with Jesus being referenced as the second Adam? So Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they're literal. They really did happen that way. And I want you to know that God's word is truth. It's an authority for our life. And so I take this to be true, but not just true. I take it to be as the truth. Let me show you in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness 
But then look at verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out. God literally breathed it out and he carried the authors along. Like I said earlier, using their personalities, their writing skills, their vocabulary, their backgrounds. And he superintended as they wrote, as the pen hit paper, it was inspired. Not only was it true, it was the truth. Without error, without contradictions. And I think that science and the Bible work together. And when there's a conflict, we're not understanding one of them rightly. So they shouldn't be in conflict. But God's word really is the truth. In 2020, we were planning on bringing our high school students on a wilderness trip to Algonquin Park. And Algonquin Park is incredible. There's a lot of good signage out there. That's probably why I appreciate it so much, that when you are canoeing through a lake, you can see these big orange signs, and those are indicators that that's a campsite. You can see them across the lake. It's, it's really easy to spot. And then when you get to a trail, we call it a portage, you get to this big yellow sign. It says, this lake to that lake, this many meters. And so you, right then and there, you know exactly where you're at. But in 2020, something crazy happened in our world, right? COVID happened. We can no longer cross the border into Canada. At least we couldn't do it legally. And with a bunch of high school students, that was problematic. So we decided to keep the trip in the United States. So we went to the Boundary Waters. I'd never been to the Boundary Waters. But the thing about the Boundary Waters in Minnesota is there's no signage. There's no campsite signs. There's no portage signs. It's just... Get out your compass and your map and figure it out. And this was the first time that I actually had to use a compass. I had to figure out, how do I use this? It's pretty simple. You figure out where you are, and then you figure out where you're going, and you line that up, and then you turn on this compass that has lines that go up and down. You turn those lines to go running with the north and the south, and you find out where you want to go, and then you put the red arrow in this red shed, and you find that bearing, and then you just paddle, and you paddle, and you keep that red arrow in the red shed, and eventually you will find your destination. You find your spot on the map, you mark it, and you do it again, and this is how we traveled. This compass helped us navigate our ways through the wilderness, through the lakes. That's what God's word is. God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a compass. It shows us how to live our lives. The Bible is an authority for life. I believe that God created the world. He's our source for life. And his word is an authority for life. And so as we get into some of these really difficult conversations, I want to let you know, as we talk about things, like race, abortion, sanctity of life, gender, sexuality. I don't want you to go out there and weaponize these truths. Last thing I want you to do is take what we talk about. Go out to your friends, go out into your community and say, aha, look what we talked about. 
Go listen to this sermon. Go listen to that podcast. Go watch this video and use what we talk about as a hammer or a club to hurt people. That's not the point. The point is to enter into these conversations with grace and truth. And I know some of you will disagree with me. You'll have yeah buts. You'll have more questions and then more questions. And I might not be able to answer all of your questions. But here's how I want to approach these conversations. Look at Colossians chapter 4. He says, be wise. When should I be wise? In the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Outsiders and insiders, when you go out into your world and you talk with people who agree with you or disagree with you, you ought to be wise. And you need to make the most of every single opportunity. Talk with them. Make it your commitment to have conversations filled with grace and truth. Look at verse 6. He says, let your conversations be always full of grace. Seasoned with what? Salt. Why? What's the purpose? So that you may know how to answer everyone. That when you have conversations with people, it's so important that they, lo- that they feel loved and known by you. That they feel heard. That being right isn't always the most important thing. So watch what you say. Watch what you post on social media. Even if you are right, some of you will lose friends because you are so committed to being right. Some of you will jeopardize relationships with people who are unbelievers, people who are far from God because you are so convinced you're right. And Paul says, enter into those conversations with grace and salt. Salt is what seasons food. Right? You take it and it's sort of bland. It makes it taste a little bit better. Let your conversations do that. The Greeks believe that, that salt is, this is a picture of, of being witty, not being snarky or sarcastic, but always having an answer. Being ready to engage and talk with everybody. But do you want to be right? Or do you want to win people? I'll tell you, there's conversations I'll have with people that are very difficult conversations. I'll only have those as one-on-one conversations. Email and text are not great places to have some of those conversations. And there's conversations I'll have with really close friends. I'll say really difficult things and we'll work through things. We'll kind of debate and argue and banter. And then there's people that I, I just barely know and I'll have that conversation differently. I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to back away from the truth. But here's my commitment to you. As we talk about some of these really challenging conversations, we'll do it with grace and truth. So here's the application. I want you to wrestle with these questions this week. Number one, is your worldview filtered through the Bible or is your worldview filtering the Bible? Which is doing what? Am I allowing God's word to be a lens in which I see everything through, or am I taking the world 
and what I see on the news and what I hear in talk radio and what I see from my friends and what I see from social media and my filtering God's word through all of the things that are happening in the world. Because that matters. Is your testimony towards outsiders helpful to them? Again, do you want to be right or do you want to win people? doesn't mean you have to flake on truth. It doesn't mean you have to back down from truth. But are your conversations full of grace and anchored in truth? Number five, are you appropriately prepared to give an answer for your beliefs? Again, these are really big conversations. We're not going to answer all your questions. They might spark more questions. And that's why we want you to come back. Because each week will build on the previous week or previous weeks. And so if it's your rhythm to only come once a month or only a couple of times a month, come every single week because we are going to be having these conversations. And again, my commitment to you is to talk about these things full of grace and truth. Let me pray with you. God, you are amazing. We're thankful for your truth. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can enter into these conversations and talk about them knowing we might not all agree, we might not fully understand everything, but with your word, there is hope. We also recognize that you are our source of life and that changes everything. And so I ask that you would help us today as we leave to continue to reflect on the fact that you are our source of life You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to fix our eyes on your son Jesus today. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.